I remember asking her, what should I do about this heart problem? Why am I on this medication? I don't really know what's wrong. I can't really work out. It's very limiting. I'd like to find a better solution because the medication isn't fully helping me and I can't live a normal life. And her response was, if you keep mentioning this heart problem, I'm going to diagnose you with anxiety. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Evidently, having a doctorate in physical therapy and working in the healthcare field does not protect you from medical incompetence, arrogance, and errors. When Dr. Jill Murphy went to the ER with potential stroke symptoms, the staff called the neurologist to examine Jill, but he refused. So the staff sent Jill away without a diagnosis, but with instructions to buy some baby aspirin. This was the first in countless medical encounters where Jill was disbelieved, dismissed, or denigrated. Meanwhile, Jill continued to have countless mini-strokes, yet doctor after doctor after doctor failed Jill. They gave her a conversion disorder diagnosis, saying her symptoms were all in her head, telling her husband she must have been sexually abused as a child. But Jill is a smart and determined person, and her persistence paid off when she finally, years later, got a proper diagnosis that required a heart ablation and pacemaker and lifelong medications. Now, Jill is using that same determination and lessons learned from being a disbelieved patient to raise awareness and education among the public and healthcare workers, and will soon be publishing her first book, physician, heal thyself. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. 
And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for your own experience with medical error or for living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. And now here's my interview with Jill and a word of warning that some folks may be triggered by Jill's experiences with the healthcare system. Awesome, thanks. Okay, Jill, so where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up on a dairy farm in Northeast Wisconsin, about 40 minutes north of Lambeau Field, so big Packer fans. Um, my childhood, I was the youngest of three and growing up in a dairy farm, you definitely were expected to work. And uh, we were also German. So very much into the work and cleaning and uh, just being part of the family farm. I got a chance to work on the farm as I was older and certainly even growing up, didn't matter how old you were, you were out working, uh, helping out where you could, what was age appropriate. So, um, Looking back, it was great. I learned how to work, but as a child, I probably hated it when my friends were swimming and having fun in the summer. Right. Yeah, I grew up on a farm too. I'm very familiar with that. There you go, double-edged sword. Yeah, yeah. The, for me, the best part about farming was helping the calves being born. I like taking care of animals. So what got you off the farm? Where did you go after that? I went to college at Concordia University and majored in athletic training and sports medicine. Uh, Concordia is located just north of Milwaukee. And I also pursued my master's degree in physical therapy there. So that got me off the farm. <laughs> um, but, you know, thankfully, my dad was always so supportive of us getting our education. He didn't ever try to tie us to the farm. And um, he, I really appreciate that. He let us do activities and sports and music and everything. So um, I appreciate that. Wow. So then you started your career in physical therapy. Um, and when did your health intersect with the healthcare system? Yes, well, I had an amazing career going. I uh, worked uh, in Green Bay, Wisconsin for Quite a few years in a dream job where I was a physical therapist. I also pursued my doctorate in physical therapy and completed that. I was able to be a strength and conditioning coach as well as an athletic trainer with local high schools. So it really was all of my passions. It was a lot of work, a lot of hours, but I loved it. And I loved learning from all of the people around me. And then I met my husband. We moved to the Fox Valley, just 30 minutes south. And um, bought a house. Uh, we were married. We had our first child, and everything was going great. Had a good job, and um, really, um, I didn't have any health issues to speak of until I had already started my own private practice in the community where I live in Nina, Wisconsin. And it came on quietly, it snuck up. Um, I had three children, or have three children. Um, when I was pregnant with my third child, Adeline, in the 20th week, I had a heart arrhythmia that began. It wasn't really diagnosed. I ended up in the hospital. 
They tried to figure out what it was, but the cardiologist walked out and said, her heart rate's not 100, so she's not a cardiology case, and he just walked out. So the OB thankfully put me on a medication that helped control my fast heart rate. I didn't get a diagnosis or name of it. I just knew something was wrong with my heart and the medication she put me on, uh, which was a beta blocker, labetalol, was helpful. And I was able to work. At the time, I was also teaching a strength and conditioning class called Build a Better Body. So I was five months pregnant, six months pregnant, showing um, box jumps, plyos, ladder drills, coordination drills. And eventually, with the heart arrhythmia, my heart would go so fast, I couldn't talk and explain my drill and do it at the same time. So it kind of hampered my ability to do that. And I had to um, end the class then. Um, I just couldn't keep up with that and be a good coach and produce a good class. Um, I ended up um, going up in a dose of the medicine over the summer because it was hotter and heat. Uh, stimulated that um, tachycardia, just a fast heart rate, um, more so. And so, and then, yep. uh, how fast would your heart rate get if you're just sort of sitting around? Yeah, that was kind of the argument over the years that physicians would make that it really wasn't that impressive, it really wasn't that high. But I had been an athlete, I had been a marathoner, um, I had done sports my whole life, been active my whole life. So my heart rate was usually around 60 as a normal. And it would just go fast for no reason. But for sure, if I was doing activity, it would go faster than it should. So it would just make you short of breath. Maybe it would continue and have chest pain. Um, I remember sitting and deadheading my petunias outside in the evening in the shade in summertime, and I would be short of breath and my heart would be so it was just very out of the normal for what activity I was doing. And then you would get lightheaded, um, shorter breath, chest pain. You couldn't talk and carry on a conversation doing the mildest of activities. And especially in the evening, especially in summers, if I was tired from working all day, I would just have to lay down on the couch and rest. And so it sounds like this went on during your entire pregnancy, third pregnancy? It, it did, and then I had Adeline, and I was assured that whatever was wrong with my heart was due to the pregnancy, and once I was no longer pregnant, it would go away, and I would be able to slowly wean off the medicine, and um, so I gave it time. Certainly, you just had a baby, you have three kids, and a practice, You're not exactly jumping into working out right away, and so I gave it lots of time, a couple of months, and then I started weaning down off the medicine. And I was able to do one step down, but by the second step down, I just couldn't do it. It messed with my blood pressure. It was a blood pressure medication. Uh, so I saw my local cardiologist and, and a nurse practitioner there actually was the most helpful. She would meet with me. She would try to answer my questions. I still didn't have a name of a diagnosis, but she would at least manage my medicine. And after, that was the winter of 2014, after I couldn't wean off and I had to stay on the medicine, I was thinking this is what I'm going to be on the rest of my life, but I don't even have a diagnosis. What is the name of this? What is going on? It just, I wanted to try to work out, 
I wasn't very successful working out because as you can imagine, I was just as short of breath and just with light running. So I kept trying, it wasn't working. It was frustrating because I did want to work out then. And so I kind of gave up because the local doctors maybe ran a stress test on a treadmill and stopped it early. They're like, I can't go any further, so you're fine. <laughs> and that was it. And I just wasn't satisfied with that after months and months of being limited. My plan all along was to run those marathons, get rid of that baby weight, and move on to working out and high-level things. So I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what I had. So I live in Wisconsin, Mayo Clinic's four hours away, so I went to Mayo. <laughs> Except Mayo has a lot of cardiologists, and you don't know who to see if you don't already have the name of what's wrong with you. So that was a little bit challenging. I was in the postpartum time period, so I found a postpartum specialist to see. I ran it by their medical secretary and she said, yeah, it looks like you'd be appropriate for her to see. So I got in with her and I realized her specialty was postpartum cardiomyopathy, which is a type of heart failure that can occur related to pregnancy. But they ran all of their tests. They reran every test. It's very interesting. At Mayo Clinic, they rerun everything from your standard EKG, which is really simple and easy, to an echocardiogram. During the echo, they did kind of rush in and like, do you work out? Are you an athlete? Because there were some um, areas of my heart that were enlarged. I, I didn't know at the time. It had been a few years since I'd run a marathon. So I didn't know if that was from my pregnancy or from running. There's no way to know. So they didn't seem worried about it. A couple of weeks later, I got a clean bill of health. There's nothing wrong. She couldn't find anything. They did give me a Holter monitor. I'm sure, you know, my heart rate was made a little faster. It just wasn't impressive. So that was it. And that was in the summer of 2014. And one night, a couple of weeks after that, um, I had, actually, before that, I went to see, I had to switch primary physicians. My primary physician, who I loved, moved out of the area moved to Colorado. Um, I really I liked working with him. Thankfully, I didn't have much wrong with me. I was 36, 37, mostly having babies and seeing my OB at the time. But he left town, so I had to reestablish care with her for something. And uh, I remember her saying, I remember asking her, what should I do about this heart problem? Why am I on this medication? I don't really know what's wrong. I can't really work out. It's very limiting. I'd like to find a better solution because the medication isn't fully helping me and I can't live a normal life. And her response was, if you keep mentioning this heart problem, I'm going to diagnose you with anxiety. So that was that. <laughs> I already didn't love this physician. I think she's not even in patient care any longer, thank goodness. Um, but yeah, so a couple weeks later, when essentially I had my first transient ischemic attack, laying down, my heart was kind of off that night, kind of jumpy. And we were watching 24 with Kiefer Sutherland. Yes. What that term you use, trans? Transient ischemic attack or TIA is like, in the past people might call it a mini stroke. 
stroke, but it's considered a warning sign for stroke because you have the symptoms of a stroke, but they go away in less than 24 hours. It was like 11 o'clock at night. I'm just like, why? My left arm was kind of weird. My left leg, they were kind of heavy. I was just laying on the couch, but I tried to get up. I couldn't really like get myself up off the couch. I'm like, this is weird. So I like rolled off the couch and to figure it out. Remember, I'm a physical therapist. So I'm like, okay, this isn't right. This is a little bit weak on my left side. I had a little bit of a limp. It felt like I had less sensation. I was trying to figure out, even in my face, there were some symptoms as well, a little less sensation, just felt heavy, felt weird. Looked in the mirror, didn't see anything wrong. It was 11 o'clock, three kids are asleep in bed. It's late. My husband's like, let's just go back. And I'm like, okay, well, let me stomp it out. Let me, I, I just tried to do something. I kind of knew what it was, but how could I go to the ER with that when Mayo had just given me a clean bill of health? The primary doctor had just said, you were going to say you're anxious. <laughs> and so went to bed. Thankfully, the symptoms were gone the next morning, and I didn't think about it really again. I struggled that fall. Uh, I tried to read about some things that it could be online. Maybe it was like POTS, or maybe if I just slowly increased my training in really small increments, I could sneak something in and make my heart behave better. So I tried that. I coordinated it with my six-year-old wanted to run this 5K in town that my clinic was partially sponsoring. So we trained together, and it turns out she was the miserable training partner. She cried the whole time. Um, that's okay. We got the race day. She was so motivated, like more motivated than ever. She saw that they had a harmonica that she could win, so she was going to win the race in her age. So she took off, and um, I was so thankful. I swear this is a God thing. It's never happened since. Her shoelace kept coming untied. And I said, there's no way I have so much pride. I'm not going to stop running and rest and hamper my six-year-old. So <laughs> we finished the race. I was so, so tired. I didn't know how I would even get home safely driving with her in the car. We were only about 10 or 15 minutes away from home. They had a really long raffle and breakfast after, which I was thankful for, but I really wasn't that much better when I got in the car. Thankfully, we got home. And really that day, Tommy, that was like in October of 2014, I'm like, there's something really wrong. I'm not going to be able to work out through this. I need to figure out what this is. But I just had no leads. Everything was a dead end. So shrugged my shoulders and went on with life um, until New Year's Eve 2014. I'm a PT. Everyone tries to fit in their last PT the day before their deductibles start over. So had a busy morning in the clinic, and then I went to my own dentist before my dental deductible started over and got a cavity filled. Uh, she had filled another one two days earlier, and I didn't think it was a big deal, but I went in. She um, numbed my area of my mouth where she was going to work, and she injected me with the mepivacaine, which is the analgesic. Uh, my heart started going really, really fast, and I it was weird. Maybe I was nervous, anxious. I'm not really an anxious person. So I just tried to breathe through it, let her finish the injection. I said, if this continues, I'm going to have to tell her we just need to stop. 
but she walks out of the room to let the numbness take effect. It calmed down, had the feeling, moved on with my day. That night we were having a fun dinner with the kids for New Year's and I was tired. And I was tired at the end of a lot of days because of my heart problem. So I was, I'm gonna go sit down in a chair. I picked up this newspaper, it's a freebie newspaper, it took five minutes to read. I remember setting it down and not finish reading it. I was so tired, I couldn't read this five minute newspaper. And after a few minutes, I realized, uh, again, the symptoms in my left arm, my left leg, my face were back. This time they were worse than what they had been in the summer. I um, had my daughter on my lap. My husband was taking pictures because they had New Year's crowns on and everything. And I said, please take Addie off. I'm going to drop her. She's my one-year-old at the time. And I tried walking. I tried figuring out. Of course, I tried running. That's what every runner does. Running solves every problem when you're a runner, right? Uh, that didn't work well. <laughs> and then I realized, yeah, I had a, I had a big I had about 75% of my normal strength in my arm and leg. Couldn't walk normally at all. Couldn't, my face was worse than it had been before, but I couldn't see anything visually that was different, but it just felt numb and less sensation on the left side. So uh, this time I knew it was worse than in summer, far worse. Um, and I was so tired. I couldn't figure out why I was just more tired than ever. So I said, we have to go in. I know what this is. This is more serious. So my husband took me to the ER with the three kids in tow. They brought me back. They identified it right away as a code stroke. So they did a full workup. Um, it was pretty hilarious. I was so exhausted. It was almost like falling asleep as they were asking me questions. And I remember the ER doctor congratulating me for selecting their hospital to come to because they were a certified stroke center. I remember in my mind, like, this is so hilarious. Like, I would have like totally said a sarcastic comment, but I didn't have enough air to say, like, what a joke that was. They were just 10 minutes away. They were the closest hospital. Where was I going to go? Um, but they did run the CT. They uh, did run on MRI. And I don't remember, I'm so fatigued. They, they did all the tests appropriate, but they never came back to me and told me what the results were. I also had something that is unusual. I didn't understand it until that night. It's called unilateral neglect. It means you just don't wanna attend to something on one side of you for no reason at all. So for me, again, left-sided symptoms, I didn't wanna turn and look to the left. So I stared at the right, side of my ER room the whole night. And why am I doing this? But I just had no desire to look to the left. It was just weird. So finally a nurse came in. I think I needed to use the bathroom. She got me a wheelchair because I couldn't walk yet. Um, came back and I went around. The symptoms started around 7 p.m., 7.30. I went in around 7.30, p.m. It's now midnight. 12.30 a.m., the ER doctor comes back, and he's like, so you can go. I want you to go to um, a 24-hour grocery store and buy yourself some baby aspirin and take four of them. And I'm like, well, well what, wait, what's going on? What do I have? Is I still feel weak on my left side. It still feels off. Like, what do I have? What's going on? And he just kind of walked out. <laughs> 
um, I know this doctor and I've seen him a few times since. I think he just didn't have any answers. So he wasn't going to answer them. So I asked the nurse, I'm like, well, does he know that these symptoms are gonna go away within 24 hours? Because if not, shouldn't I, shouldn't I have some sort of a like, TPA or something like that? So the doctor mentioned under his breath, well, we don't have any beds anyway. As he walked away, they transfer me to like Brader to the Medical College of Milwaukee to a bigger facility, uh, but that wasn't offered to me, and I just I trusted them. I I was an orthopedic PT. I knew the signs of stroke. I didn't treat strokes. I certainly didn't treat acute stroke in the ER. I trusted them to do the right thing, and of course. Uh, the symptoms didn't go away in 24 hours fully, and I still have residual effects from that. But you yeah. still have residual effects from that to this day? Yes, yes. Uh, so I used to run marathons. In fact, I ran a half marathon, pregnant with my first um, daughter. And now I can run a quarter mile before my left leg, it has neural fatigue. So it has less sensation. Um, I can't feel where I'm putting my foot in space. Um, there's less strength. There's not coordination. So I literally have to look at my foot to place it. But I didn't know all of that then. So that month of January was horrible because on my ER thing, it said I had a TIA. TIA. As transient ischemic attack. I followed up as they told me to. It was New Year's Day the next day. So in two days, I went to the neuro locally in town who they sent me to. And I am a PT. I know how to do a clinical exam. I was just so disappointed I couldn't walk right. And I noticed that in my clinic. I, of course, tried to treat. Um, I couldn't walk more than 50 feet without starting to limp. I would be tired. There were just obvious symptoms. My arm would be tired. I couldn't sit on a stool for longer than an hour. My trunk would be tired. It affects your entire left side or right. So I remember walking. I felt like I was staggering like a drunk person. And she said, why are you walking like that? Oh, I, I just, I think there's something wrong. <laughs> And so later on, I get these notes, oh, everything was fine, her imaging was fine, there's nothing wrong. So I just realized what would happen in reality, what they saw clinically. For some of these physicians, they wouldn't even document in their note because it didn't follow what they wanted to say the diagnosis was or wasn't. In a couple of days later, I ended up seeing a, my headache doctor, who was a neurologist as well. And he had known me from before, so he knew I wasn't some, I don't know, anxious, crazy person. It's always good to know people before you have a problem so they know you. And um, he took it seriously and ordered a bunch of tests like hypercoagulability tests, just rare reasons why you might have a stroke. I had told all of them about my heart going really fast during that dental injection that day, but and I told them all about my heart issues, um, but I think they felt they were already vetted, so they didn't really go there again. And that was that, but that month, I ended up with a horrible headache that wouldn't go away, that I realize now, a day or a week later. 
so that's why I was seeing my headache doctor. I had a couple of other TIAs again. I had a huge medication reaction. Nobody figured out until my throat almost closed. It just was a really bad month, a pretty wasted month. I didn't really wasn't able to work in my clinic or do anything. It must have been very frightening, not just medically, but for your family. I don't even know. <laughs> I was just trying to take care of me and trying to solve the problem. I needed to get back to work. I didn't have disability. I own my own practice. I had another PT at the time working with me, thankfully. And it was January, thankfully a quieter month. Um, so I had a little bit of time to sort it out and I kept going to other places and other facilities, UW Health, just anywhere I could go. I tried to get a neuroconsult there. They wouldn't let me. I ended up going to the ER. They misdiagnosed the medication reaction as conversion disorder. That was rich. What's that um, one? <laughs> so I, I'd been given Topamax to Pyrame as a headache medicine from my headache doctor because I'd had this huge headache, unusual, I think it was related to the stroke or, or just kind of downstream from the stroke for me. So he put me on this daily medicine I'd been on it before. And I even remember looking online at the side effects, like maybe it's this medicine, I just feel off. It was like middle of January, two weeks later, I couldn't figure it out, I'm like, why? I was starting having trouble thinking and reading and comprehending. And then I kind of burst into tears in the McDonald's drive-through as I couldn't figure out how to order my kids' happy meals. I had a six-year-old at the time, so like I'm pretty good at ordering happy meals, and I couldn't figure out what words to use to order a happy meal. So <laughs> Uh, a couple of days later, it just kept getting worse. I realized it was taking me forever to eat and chew food. I, I just had all of these crazy symptoms and went to, you know, UW Health and I got that conversion disorder. I'm like, I really think something's wrong with my throat. Like, I can't get things down my throat. I'd even been to a speech therapist um, as a cognitive, and I'd been to occupational therapy just to document my left-sided remaining issues, um, also just to document, they're like, just do everyday activities, you have a high level cognitive job, just do what you do, and you should get better. So I, I remember then going from UW Health to a local uh, nurse practitioner because the ER refused to give me uh, an order for speech therapy. I'm like, clearly I have something wrong with swelling, but this all doesn't make sense. I'm in healthcare. A stroke doesn't get worse as you go. So it couldn't have been related to the stroke. What symptoms you have of your stroke, you have worse immediately, and then they gradually get better. So it, it did end up, I realized the next morning, um, after they were trying to explain to my husband and I how I must have been sexually abused, you know, all these things to cause the conversion disorder, that, um, and I, I knew it was laughable. I back in the garbage before I even left the room in the ER, but um, I realized that I couldn't swallow at all, and I'd never taken my medicine, and I started, my throat started opening again, like, oh, it was the Topamax medicine, so it took me a long time, it took me about six months to get the conversion disorder diagnosis taken off the ER visit, and that was seen everywhere, and all of my other visits. Sorry, for folks who aren't familiar with that term, conversion disorder, what is that? 
Oh, maybe you could explain it more than I could. <laughs> I feel like I'm a PT, <laughs> not a counselor. Um, I feel like it's a garbage term used a lot when I don't know what else is wrong, and it must be the patient has some issues underlying causing this physical manifestation of unknown, right? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, psychosomatic. Yeah, it's all in your head. It's yeah. not really physically happening. Something's wrong yeah. with you psychologically. Yes. Well, I knew enough to know that wasn't true. So, um, but thankfully, the next day I figured it out, stopped taking the Topamax, and within a week, everything had returned to normal um, in terms of being able to eat and swallow and my cognition, thankfully. It was, that part was very stressful. <laughs> Uh, at the time, because I didn't know why that was happening. So I gradually improved. Um, the OT, the occupational therapist I'd seen, had given me this neoprene, like supporter sleeves. I, as I tried to do a few hours in the clinic here and there, sitting unsupported on a stool, it was just very challenging. My whole, I would be so tired. Um, my trunk would be so tired. My back would just be spasming. I just couldn't hold myself up unsupported for that long. So um, all those things helped, and then I continued to try to figure out the heart arrhythmia issue um, and tried to do more and more research. And that January, after the mild stroke uh, that no one recognized had happened, um, I remember early in February, I had a conference to go to in Indianapolis and I look back now and of course it's crazy and my husband agreed to it but I'm like I just really want to go to that conference I'm going to drive seven hours to Indianapolis by myself to attend this conference and if my heart goes funky or if I just feel good I'll just hang out in the hotel room I'm not speaking I don't have to attend any sessions and just in case I had discovered maybe I should see an electrophysiologist, which is a cardiologist who specializes in heart arrhythmias. I'd gotten that far in my research, and maybe I should just run it by him. If he said I could go, literally, I was on my way out of town. The car was uh, packed. And he said, yes, I could go. I did have another Holter monitor strapped to me. He's like, that'll be great. It'll record anything that goes wrong. And so I did. I went all the way to Indianapolis for three days by myself. To this conference, um, we had been to like 13 different ERs trying to solve the headache issue and the Topamax issue over the month of January. So I joked to my friends, like, well, it could be in another state where I haven't been to an ER. But um, anyway, it went fine. I went back, uh, got back. Over the next couple of months, I gradually increased my clinic schedule. Uh, I went back to see that electrophysiologist with the Holter results. It was funny, the first day I met with him, he said, maybe you have this inappropriate sinus tachycardia, which is just, you have a normal sinus rhythm, but it goes faster than it should, your heart at any time for no particular reason. Like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I started reading about, that makes a lot of sense. The second time I followed up with his nurses after my Holter, and they're like, no, you're fine. You're normal. There's nothing wrong. He won't see you again. I'm like, but wait a second. I had this TIA. I mean, I'm still having residual. I couldn't even work out yet. And they're like, nope, you're normal. You're fine. Don't need to be seen. So by March, I'm a PT, of course. So I'm like, okay, I need to keep working on my improvement. 
from this stroke. So I'm like, okay, now that I can do most of my daily things, I should start walking. And so I started a walking program, like, I guess, totally right. I could walk about a quarter mile on the treadmill and my foot started slapping. I'm like, that's about where I thought it was based on walking with Aaron's. My husband really had been doing everything. He took care of my three kids. He did shopping. He did house cleaning. All I did was try to get better and maintain my business. Um, at that point, the other PT had left. I was all by myself treating all of my patients in my clinic. So my husband was wonderful in taking care of all those other things so that I mean, he, he invested his money too in our business and we just wanted to keep it going. And um, so we focused on that. I focused on increasing my walking. And I did see some other neurologists as well, again, just trying to get a connection because I didn't, if you don't have a reason for it, then you can't prevent it from happening again. And it technically had been the second time. And the rehab was slow. It wasn't going that fast. And so, of course, I went back to, I didn't know where to go. I went to Mayo again, saw a random neurologist. Yeah, that didn't go very well. It, it's hard when you're pretty far in your rehab and a clinical exam, you're not going to catch the, the neural fatigue or lack of endurance. You're only gonna catch the big things, right? A total weakness. I could say what I couldn't do, but since I can't clinically examine it, they're like, oh, she looks pretty good. She said, come back the next time you have these symptoms. We can, you can stay in a hotel for a few days and we'll fit you in. And I'm like, are you a neurologist? Like in three hours, you need to make a decision to treat or it's a waste of time. So I moved on. It was uh, May 2nd. It was a beautiful, sunshiny day in Wisconsin. There's not a lot of those in early May, so you take advantage. I was a runner at heart. I missed running, and I woke up that morning, and I'm like, well, maybe they're right. Maybe this is all in my head. If I just pretend this doesn't exist, I'm sure I could run my normal two-mile long run. Let me just go out there and try it. So... I, I like I'm believing these doctors there's nothing wrong with me so I laced up my shoes I got my iPod, iPod I don't know my mp3 player that I really missed my running list and I got so excited I was going to go for a long run just in my neighborhood just a little two miler which was a lot more than I had been doing but you know like these doctors must be right it must be all in my head if I just push harder um, I'll be able to do it and I'll prove them right. So I went about a quarter mile and sure enough, the fatigue uh, in my foot kicked in and except, and then I'm like, well, I'll just walk and then I'll run again, I'll walk, I'll run again, right? I can train myself easily. But it kept getting worse. So I was a mile away from my house. Uh, I couldn't feel my foot anymore. And the, the lack of sensation was kind of growing up my left leg and I had to like look to place my foot on the ground because I had no proprioception or ability to know that my foot was safely on the ground flat and not rolling my ankle with each step. So I, I just slowly hobbled and limped back to the house. I didn't have a phone. It was in the early morning. Nobody was around to hitch me a ride in the neighborhood. So I thought really nothing of it other than, hmm, I guess this whole stroke stuff is not in my head after all. Apparently I do have deficits that are remaining. 
so um, in that time, I also forgot to mention, I also had some visual issues. I had slammed the door on my six-year-old going shopping like in the week after the stroke. I just didn't see her. I wasn't looking to my left, running into the walls. And I'd run it, anything on my left side that was jutting out, I would run into. I just wouldn't see it. And uh, thankfully that got better over time, but that was part of that unilateral neglect. So I even went to vision therapy, um, hated it. I got sick every time. I was so nauseous. I'd go back to the clinic, completely nauseous. I'd be nauseous doing it. It was just part of how the stroke had affected my visual process. So there are definitely deficits. It was weird. All the allied health providers could see the deficits but any of the physicians couldn't, basically. So over time, I was able to um, get more endurance with daily activities and treating patients. And um, that day I went for that long run and ended up walking slash running, mostly walking the two miles. Um, the following day, my hand started throbbing. It was the worst pain ever. It was literally 36 hours after I ran. I ended up needing ankle surgery months later. Apparently I'd ruined the synovial, there was a synovial reaction and no amount of rehab or anything would get it better. And of course I tried as a PT and I had to finally go to my foot doctor. Uh, um, he said, you know, Jill, you really had something that happened back in January. I'm like, I know, I know, I just can't find anyone to help me. And he's like, well, I know a guy I used to work with him, he investigated all these weird neural things. I'm like, perfect. It's definitely a weird neural thing. Send him my way. So it um, took six months to get in with that specialist. In the meantime, that year, I had, since I had the inappropriate sinus tachycardia to go with, I then realized what other tests I needed for that workup for the arrhythmia and um, did get it. Tried a bunch of different medications based on physician suggestions that didn't help. And then finally, I found a guy in Iowa who seemed to be specialized in it. And he was able to put me on a medicine called the Vabradine that was popular in Europe and just had become available through the FDA in America's a um, kind of off-label use for inappropriate sinus tachycardia. It was used as a heart failure drug to keep people out of the hospital with a high heart rate. So it was a wonderful drug for inappropriate sinus tachycardia in that it would reduce your heart rate without reducing your blood pressure because I had normal blood pressure. My hope is that if I controlled the arrhythmia, I wouldn't have any more TIAs or strokes. And since I didn't have any help on the neuro side, I just went with that. So I went on that medicine. It seemed to help. Um, I, around Christmas time, I got a little low on my dosage. It was super expensive, so I was ordering it from like a Canadian pharmacy, some online thing. It would take three weeks to ship from India or Turkey or Pakistan, um, but it was the only way we could afford the drug. Even then, it was hundreds of dollars per month. So it was around Christmas time, and I didn't realize at Christmas time it takes longer to ship. So I was running low on the medicine, so I tried to reduce my dose and make it last a little longer because I knew if I went to Walgreens, it would be like $60 for one pill. So sure enough, that day, I had a little TIA again. <laughs> so I realized this arrhythmia and, and the stroke were related, but it took forever for any physicians to recognize that. Um, 
So I did end up seeing that specialist that my orthopedic surgeon had recommended. And he was kind of a breath of fresh air. I had the doctor in Iowa and they had at the time uh, something called an implanted loop recorder. If you've ever heard of it, it can monitor your heart rhythm and it's a device inside of you. It's not a pacemaker, it doesn't shock you. It just monitors your heart rhythm from afar. And I remember the Iowa doctor asking if I wanted that because then he could monitor me from Iowa. And I'm like, I don't need monitoring. I just need medicine that works. And then a year later, he saw me and I'd had yet another TIA. I kept having more and more. And he saw me limp. I had stopped at the store and walked a long way. So he saw me limping in. Um, this had been a little bit more significant one. and. He decided then, well, let's get the loop recorder in you, make sure it's not atrial fibrillation, that another arrhythmia that is more understood to cause stroke. So I finally got that in in March, got it um, updated. It can catch my arrhythmias. They were in the 130s to 150s. Um, it had to be 172 to catch it. We moved that setting down and then he was catching it all the time talked to the doctor in um, Illinois who I'd been referred to, who was a neurologist who specialized in this arrhythmia as well. Um, so he was helpful. He ran a couple of other tests. And I, I just kept having though, even on the maximal evabradine and then like, can I go up a little bit higher? And I finally had maxed out on the evabradine and it took a while, but finally over a couple of years, I was able to figure out you could get a heart ablation and that could fix the arrhythmia. What's that? Uh, so an ablation is burning a part of your heart where the specific arrhythmia is starting. They do an EP study. It's very high tech um, and it requires a specialist, um, not something, well, they might do it more so now around where I live. Um, but I was able to find after asking seven different physicians. My doctor and I was very against it. My doctor in Chicago was like, go get it. I will never have to see you again. And it took uh, several doctors that no one wanted to touch it. Inappropriate signs tachycardia is like the uh, fibromyalgia of arrhythmias. No one wants to treat you. No one wants to see you. Um, I didn't know that. I didn't bring it on myself. It happened during a pregnancy. But um, finally, I was able to find a physician who did the ablation. Um, it's ablating part of your SA node, which is the pacemaker of your heart. So the result is you might need a pacemaker. I did uh, a week after that. But I was really hoping it would solve the stroke issue. Oh, and, hold on. Yeah. So wait, so how did they actually go into your heart to do that? Can you describe that procedure? So they run catheters, um, little tubes <laughs> up your femoral vein, or they could do your artery. I think mine was vein, depending where they have to go in the heart. And they thread that up and um, kind of like getting a heart cath where they might put in a stent. Here they would use the heart cath to get into the area and then they would run their software animation study to figure out where the origination of your arrhythmia is, and then they can locate where to burn out that little area of your heart. And uh, it's a tiny area, it's very like high tech and small little burns. 
um, and they're able to see, actually he, he could see I had a couple of arrhythmias and I actually went into AFib during the procedure. I was not awake. Um, so that just shocked me to stop that rhythm. So I had a couple actually different arrhythmias they didn't know that I had until I did the ablation. Um, so they did that and um, they went inside the heart and for me, they saw a spot on the outside of the heart that was also causing the arrhythmia. So he, um, again, I, I really did a lot of homework, but also another cardiologist advised me to go to someone who could do an outside the heart approach too without opening you up. So they stick a little tube catheter up underneath your rib cage to the outside of the heart, blow up a balloon, push your phrenic nerve out of the way because they don't want to ablate your phrenic nerve or you won't be able to breathe because it innervates your diaphragm and lets you breathe and then ablate it underneath that phrenic nerve. And um, yeah. It's amazing what technology can do. Yeah. So I was hoping that would solve my problems with stroke, and of course, it didn't. So um, it did help my arrhythmia greatly, but I was still having some TIAs, and um, I actually took, so that was in New Year's Eve 2014 was the night of that mild stroke. The rest were smaller, shorter lived, some were, a scarier. Some I had just no function in my arm. My husband brought me to the ER. And finally, uh, it wasn't until last month, by a sheer happenstance, uh, they kept saying, no, it's too, um, they're all too similar. It must be stereotyped. That can't be a stroke. It has to be a complex migraine. I went all over. I even flew to see a researcher and like, Rhode Island, um, New York. It's like maybe if I had someone who is top of the line research who's studying cryptogenic stroke, which is a stroke that it's hard to tell the reason why you're having it. Um, and they were also knowing and in their research, which was just coming out at that time, and they're still investigating, that people can have a stroke prior to having their first bout of AFib. And they're trying to figure out how that can be, but now that they've studied with the implanted loop recorders, they're finding that patients can have a stroke before having atrial fibrillation or any other kind of arrhythmia. So it's, it's quite a gray area and a growing area in research. But um, So I even went to these researchers. Um, finally, I had so many events in a row. I even, you know, did get transferred. It's funny, I went back to that ER, the same ER, same ER doctor. Going back, I tried to make, I, I felt terrible about what had happened to me, but worse that another 37-year-old might go to the same ER, and I didn't know why they didn't treat me that night. I felt like if they would have given me TPA, which is an, a blood thinner that would clear out any possible clots, that I wouldn't have had residual from the stroke. That would have meant that if they had done the proper, giving you the proper treatment at that time, you would have been back running, back to doing all I your- I would have had a normal life. So um, I wrote a lot of letters to the hospital. I tried calling their patient experience people. I kept getting a phone call back from their attorneys. So I just kept getting blocked. I tried to write to their committee on their, their stroke committee, right? Because they were certified in stroke. I just couldn't get anywhere. No one would get back to me. And 
when you're dealing with recovery from a stroke that no one will even acknowledge, it's super hard, super hard mentally, right? Because no one's believing you, you have these big deficits. I couldn't tell anyone because I didn't want anyone in my town to know that here I was a PT, they should come to me for treatment, but I kind of had a little bit of weakness in my left arm and my left leg and my vision maybe wasn't quite perfect, like I couldn't advertise that. So I had no help. Um, no ability to talk through what was going on. And so I was trying to make the best of it by trying to make things right so other patients wouldn't experience that at that hospital and at that ER. And I, I was trying to figure out what happened that night. They seemed to do all the right steps, but then there were a couple of hours of nothing and then they sent me home. And it was just odd. So years later, I realized that they had paged a neurologist and the neurologist decided not to come in. So I felt kind of bad because I knew this ER doctor. He was like one of their top doctors. He was like head of the local ambulance group. He was very good and very precise. Like, how did this happen under his watch? So it turned out to be not really his fault. But I'd written all those letters and making those phone calls, and I was hoping he would have gotten a copy to know what had happened to me, but he never had. So two or three years later, I'm in the ER again. He's my doctor, and he wanted to figure out how I had this mild stroke and why I still had trouble from it. And I was like, well, come to think of it, you were the physician. And he felt so bad, he ended up you know, transferring me down to Northwestern via ambulance, a four-hour ambulance get a thorough stroke workup. So it was nice to just see that he really did care. It wasn't his fault. Sometimes you have to investigate and it's hard to get through bureaucratic red tape of a hospital. But it made me feel better to know that he had believed me. He had done everything he could. But could he have pushed harder for TPA or for a transfer or for that neurologist to come in? I mean, maybe that's something he would take into his practice. But at least I knew what had happened and I knew that this wasn't his normal level of care provide and that he tried to make good on it and went on and on with these neurologists and it wasn't until actually it was it was around that time where I finally was able to beg a cardiologist to give me Eloquist and then it still quite didn't work enough and then I added a baby aspirin and now I have control over the whole TIA and stroke issues medication you just mentioned, Eloquist? Eloquist is one of the new oral anticoagulants, new as in not that new, probably about five to ten years old now compared to warfarin, which is the traditional warfarin or Coumadin would be a blood thinner you would take to prevent stroke. Okay, so it sounds like your blood is thick and you need to take these blood thinners to keep it thin so you don't have these strokes all the time. And it turns out it wasn't that simple. It's probably a combination of three things, having a little bit thicker blood. Um, I also have a artery that's smaller genetically. Didn't know that. They found that on testing. And then add the arrhythmia, and that was the final straws. I'd never had issues before, and I always had the same blood, and I always had the same uh, congenital little artery abnormalities. So... Um, they still, the neurologist still isn't like, this isn't clear. It's not black and white. Like, no, it's not black and white, but at least because um, I had right-sided TIA symptoms this spring, they finally acknowledged that, oh, maybe you did have a stroke five years ago.
And maybe you should be on Eloquis and baby aspirin. They literally kept trying to take it away, which is scary when it was working. Yeah, your whole story is very frightening. Uh, so how's your functioning now? So that now you're on these two medications that seem to keep control of the symptoms. How's your functioning? Right. What's, what's wonderful, I mean, I was living a life where at some point every other week I was having a TIA and I'd have to make a decision. How bad was it? Um, I did get TPA for one of the events. I, it, it was not a good existence. <laughs> Um, so now I have much, I don't have those events any longer, and um, the arrhythmia is better. I do have a pacemaker. I have had a couple of complications from the other surgeries, but um, thankfully that is better now too. So I am really on a new lease on life in the uh, last procedure um, eight weeks ago. And I'm back to working and treating fully. Um, I still have the issues with my left side with the fatigue um, when I notice it when I was in a like a skybox at a Packer game which is like so much fun to be in a fancy box to watch a Packer game I was so nauseated I had to like sit in the back and watch the TV and I realized it was my vision is still an issue so I have some medication to take for that to help me with that um, I can still just walk run very short amounts, still that quarter mile. Um, but I was able to hike with my family for an hour or two if I have a little break. Um, I've had a second ankle surgery because sometimes I forget that that left leg is still getting me and it doesn't hurt till the next day. Trying to be good. But uh, the downside is, yeah, I use a motorized scooter for things like, um, going to retreat with my kids at this ranch where there's just a lot of walking and hills uh, for Disney World with my kids for our um, music festival I love to go to here in Oshkosh every year uh, with the kids. I just can't do prolonged standing and walking. Um, thankfully, I can do what I need to for my job every day, but uh, there's definitely a limitation. It's funny, I was working at my kids little school event and I was just sorting out these little things on trays, food on trays to help with their school function and my left arm just got so tired. So it's weird when I remember the things that, that are limiting um, but thankfully every day I don't notice a lot. It's just been super embarrassing for a very prideful former marathoner to have to use a scooter at these public events, but um, it could be far worse. So I'm grateful for what I do have. Wow, wow, that's uh, an incredible attitude to have considering you know what you've gone through to be thankful for the functioning you do have. How do you deal with the feelings of knowing that your life may not have gone this route, that you could have been and should have been helped and you'd be back to marathoning and et cetera? Yeah, I just really know that nothing can be done to change my life. It's over. I had three hours in the ER that night, and it didn't happen. So I learned several things for myself that night, is that you can't trust blindly that the right thing is going to happen. And that's not great. It's scary. I mean, I was in medicine. I didn't know to push. 
push, <laughs> push the people around you. If it doesn't make sense, if you know there's questions that aren't being answered, push to get them answered. So advocate for yourself. That's what I learned. And that's how I got to the point I am today. If I wouldn't have advocated for myself, I would be on disability and or were, you know, I, I don't even know if I'd be alive, quite honestly, with some of the complications that I've had. So um learning how to advocate for yourself, learning how to just keep plowing ahead and being creative and finding ways around the barriers in healthcare and in accessing medicine. And so I've written a book about it, uh, some of these experiences, because I just feel like it's important to share those tips and tools with other people. The whole time I'm like, I'm in healthcare and I'm still failing. How hard would it be for someone who's not familiar with healthcare? to advocate for themselves. It would be nearly impossible and I would feel so bad and I would be like, I need to try to help. So um, I'm just trying to find a silver lining and in literally each episode where I didn't get the best care or didn't get the right care or things were documented poorly or things were really messed, of going back and trying to correct those individual things with each facility or doctor. You can't fix everything, you can't change everything but I'm going to change what I can. And that's my attitude moving forward because I can't dwell on what I, again, what I don't have. I just wanna be thankful for the life that I have and help those things not to happen to other people, especially people with young stroke. Um, young stroke is um, the highest growing cohort of stroke in the US. It's not the most frequent, obviously that's an older generation, but uh, it's the fastest growing cohort and it's the more, most likely to be messed. And especially women in the postpartum period and in the pregnancy period are more likely to have stroke. I'm also trying to work with cardiologists to understand that uh, it isn't just a blood pressure problem to look for in pregnancy, but that this tachycardia problem is a problem as well. Mm. So Trying to bring awareness to that is is just trying to make something good out of something that otherwise would have been very negative. Right. So there's a, a level of acceptance of what's happened has happened. You can't change any of that. You've, you've got to move on. And it really sounds like you're making lemonade out of all of those lemons that you've been given and really making meaning out of your experiences that is sure. going to reverberate throughout the healthcare industry and in the public in general. So what's the name of your book or is it books? Right. Um, I have the uh, first manuscript finished, uh, tentatively titled Doctor Heal Thyself. And then um, the last two years is uh, covered in another book that um, I one more chapter left to write. So I'm hoping to get that first book out soon um, so that I can just help in any way that I can. And truly, yes, make some good out of not a great situation. But I, there's so much room for growth and improvement in healthcare. And as patients and as providers, we can do so much better. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And if folks wanted to find you on social media or on the net, where can they find you? Yes, I have a website, uh, drjillmurphy.com, so you can definitely contact me there and find out more information about the upcoming book. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jill, for not only sharing your experience, but for all of the advocacy and awareness that you're doing. I am always shocked by how shocked I am every time I hear these stories of medical error and negligence. 
You'd think after all these years of hearing these real-life horror stories, I'd be immune to their impact. Nope. Every time, I experienced the same anger and dismay that had happened to someone else again. And I also experienced fear and loathing for my own future medical care. How about you? What are your feelings about your future medical care? If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for your own experience with medical error or for living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.